What is going on? This is your host, The Zim, and this is MFA Chronicles. Thanks a lot for checking it out. Today we're talking with Jordan Reeves. And before we get to talking with Jordan, I like to make a few announcements. So I give myself three minutes to talk to you about random stuff. So let's get into it because I have a couple of things and three minutes isn't a long time. So um, here we go. Um, oh, first, if you don't want to hear it, just skip ahead three minutes, then you can get to the conversation. But otherwise, thanks a lot for hanging out. I really appreciate it. So first off, just, um, you know, last time I published a podcast, I said it was too late to register to vote. And that's not really accurate because there are some places in the country where you can register the same day you vote. So it is not quite um, necessarily too late. Uh, so check it out if you haven't registered yet, even though we're a, a week away from the big day or less, um, you know, hopefully you don't think it's too late. Check your area and see if you can get out there and vote. I'll have a link in the description of this podcast um, with more information about registering the vote. So check that out. And also be sure to donate. Um, I have a link. Donate to greater causes of, you know, greater causes, right? Causes, bigger causes causes donate to things that need to be donated to um i have a link in the description of this podcast to communities of color um check it out there's like a whole bunch of places you can donate like i've donated in the past to like black lives matters and things like that so voting and donate donating are the two of the biggest things to, we can do as a community um as a society to progress and make things better so check it out also Check out mfachronicles.com. That's the website for this um, podcast for a bunch more information, other podcasts that have been published. And also you can check out, there's a link to my Patreon, patreon.com slash the Zim. And I would love your support because one of my goals getting out of grad school is to stay independent. And it would be awesome if this podcast and other things like this that I'm working on could be a way to do that and you can make that possible. So check it out, patreon.com slash the Zim. And at the end of the podcast, I will do what I call credit reel, where I give shout outs to the people who are currently Patreon supporters. So check that out when we get to the end. Um, and also just want to give you a heads up that I've been, I'm hustling this art game as much as I can just today before recording with, um, Jordan, I got a notice that I got accepted to another art exhibition called the CA MFA, which is, I think, California MFA. So it's it's open to all California art school MFA students, um, and it's put on by GLA MFA, GLA MFA, which is Greater Los Angeles MFA. So more information about that will be coming up. Check out my Instagram at underscore the Zim. It's a good way to find out more. All right, let's get into this conversation with Jordan Reeves. What's up, homie? What up, man? How are you? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. Oh, I like your I like your teapot. What kind of tea are you getting down on? Uh, this is a chamomile tea. I just ran out of a. a I, so I do work for an architect in town, you know, and uh, we have done some projects for this uh, one woman, Amy, who owns a, a tea spot called Paru Tea. And so I try to support her. She has this one called uh, Campfire. That's really good, but I just ran out of it. But it tastes oh. like a hard piece of, <laughs> of wood that you pull out of a campfire. It's delicious. But I ran out of that yesterday. Today I'm drinking chamomile. It is very good, but it's not campfire. So I see that it's also, it looks like loose tea. And you have a little, the clamp thing. 
Yeah, I got, I got the little like uh, handheld tee ball thing. How long have you been getting down on that kind of like, how long has this tea thing been a part of your lifestyle? Uh, I mean, for, for quite a while, I, but I'm more of a coffee person and then I okay. drink tea in between my, my cups of coffee just so that I'm not constantly drinking coffee all day. I'm nice. a, I'm a tea bag guy. I've never got into the, the, uh, you know, the culture completely of like, you know, like really get into the tea and the steep times for each different ones and like all the different things. I would absolutely say that I am not like <laughs> okay. fully immersed in that culture. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I would say that it's a cost thing. It's actually cheaper for me to buy loose tea than it is to buy individual packets. Oh, there you go. Uh, I, sh I should probably look into it then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm being broke. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do love tea, but at, at heart, I'm a coffee guy. Okay, yeah, I can't do coffee anymore. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I used to kind of OD on coffee a lot, you know? And it's something just, I don't know what happened, but the combination of coffee and my own just level of it, like general anxiety, just like two trains on the same track heading toward each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get it. And it's a constant battle with me of whether or not I want to continue down that road or stop. You know, I think like last, not this past summer, but the summer before I quit for like five months and it was the first time that I had been off of caffeine since high school probably um and i felt like a completely new person i was like functioning much higher i was more lucid in my thoughts and my actions i was not jittery i was not anxious um but then i allowed myself to have one cup of coffee and here we are so <laughs> I'm, I'm right back in it it's that addict man you know? yeah I, I i think um i don't know i can't do coffee anymore like but the tea doesn't seem to hit me the same way like yeah, so I, you drink caffeinated tea? Yeah, I drink basically black tea is like my go-to, um, just whatever red rose at the moment, um, mm -hmm. and I just and then but I also like like sleepy time. I love sleepy time, which is you know non no caffeine, but yeah. um, but yeah, so I try to just do like one cup a day and skip a couple of days here and there, so it's yeah. not like a con. I try not to do like multiple cups a day, but yeah. I mean, at first I was, I was very much convinced that I was more addicted to the ritual of drinking something warm than I was the actual caffeine until I decided to try to stop caffeine. <laughs> and then uh, my head started, felt like it was just melting off of my neck and was like, oh, actually you are quite addicted yeah. <laughs> to this chemical. But um, maybe, I do think that there's part of it that's ritualistic, you know? Yeah, I was gonna say, maybe give yourself a little bit of like, you know, 30-70 split, you know, or something. It's it's uh you know maybe the the chemical is a a big aspect but that's the same thing for me like i just love the the warmth of it and like holding it and like one of the things back in the day when i was when i first had my kids um waking up before them was like the only time of the day that i had to myself so yeah. i would like get up early you know pour at that time i was probably still drinking coffee but i would either do coffee or tea or something and just have that hour with this cup of you know something just to have a moment and like and like at, i was in seattle at the time so like you know going out on like the porch or whatever and it would be kind of crisp outside and just all that that ritual aspect was a big big thing yeah i mean i certainly have to have it i'm a very like ritual based individual and every morning i have to wake up and have at least an hour where i'm drinking coffee and reading um reading fiction too like it has to be fiction and if i don't get that i'm emotionally just 
topsy-turvy for the entire day. So like if my day is has to start earlier, I will deliberately wake up earlier so that I can have that time. Because yeah, if I don't have it, I'm a mess. Yeah, are you reading something right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of constant. Um, I've been reading um, Zadie Smith and I've been reading, uh, um, what did I just read? Uh, the Ask by um, Sam Lipsyth, <laughs> which, which was fun. It was, it was just a really smart kind of dark humor. Um, I enjoyed that. I also am into comics, so I kind of like split my time between those things. I just, I need, I need to escape for a little bit in the morning before I delve into school shit, you know? Yeah, I hear that. I, I, I'm always on the lookout for like a good book or something like that. I, um, I recently got to be on like another podcast and we did, it was like a book discussion podcast. It was, it was awesome. I, I really, really enjoy that kind of thing. So I'll check out these, these authors and books for sure. Um, yeah, the, I, I, uh, while I have you on this line for a second, uh, I just read this book called Proxies by Brian Blanchfield, and that is um, one of the best that I've read in quite some time. And they're, they're these like musings um, where his, his intent was that he would write about things, but do it so that he was not looking up any information. He was doing it just blind and from his own memory. That's why it's called proxies. They're like approximations of these things that he's talking about. Um, I thought it was super brilliant. It was like, if you're familiar with like um, uh, Maggie Nelson or, um, no, yeah, I'm, I think it's close to Maggie Nelson, but. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much guaranteeing that we probably have very different tracks of like what we, tend to gravitate toward with, with authors and books and stuff. But, um, cause I don't recognize any of these. Uh, <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I, I mean, I read pretty much anything. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually currently reading Lord of the Flies cause my son has to uh, read it for school. So I wanted to reread it myself and like, just be able to talk to him about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a fun one, the pigs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I don't really remember all of it. So I'm still, I'm only four chapters in, so I'll, I'll kind of get back on track with it, but I'm super stoked. Yeah, pretty relevant too. <laughs> yeah. I'm super stoked to talk to you because I'm really, you know, obviously bummed about, you know, the pandemic and not being on campus and kind yeah. of not being able to run into people the same way and just have those random conversations and yeah, they're critical. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm glad we get to catch up for for a second. I've been recording this whole time, and I'll just just kind of let it fly, just whatever happens. It's no big deal. I won't go past an hour or anything. Yeah, yeah no, you're fine. But, yeah, I, I'm super happy to talk. Like I said, I mean, like so much in like one of the main reasons I came to graduate school were for those kind of like intermittent but like random conversations that you have with people that are just so productive. Um, and I've certainly been missing that over the last couple of months yeah for sure for sure we'll get it definitely i want to ask you all about just go deeper on those kind of things like how this has affected you i know that you over our email so there's a couple things i have like three things that are specific to you that i that i want to ask you about and one of them one of them we uh and then i'll get into some of the pandemic and and mfa stuff that i ask everybody about but um the one of the ones that we really terrified to hear these, but go forward. <laughs> no, no, there. I think no, they'll be. I think they'll be great because one of them you already kind of know about because we talked about it through the uh, through the the emails that I learned about you, and it's that you're uh, a Washington football fan. You know, 
So, so I wanted to find out, and you said you actually played football. So there's like a couple, couple elements there. Um, Cause like, I don't know if I, it, it was, I imagine it was noticeable. Like I wear my love of the Seahawks on my sleeve, you know, kind yeah. of on my, and I didn't really know that you were even a sports fan at all. Like you don't, you don't have that. You're not wearing like your Washington football hoodie around or anything. So, yeah. so tell, t- tell me a little bit about just set it up the way you did it in the email a little bit about what that culture was like for you growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you're not the first person to say that they were surprised to learn that I, I played sports, um, and have an, an ongoing interest in sports. Um, I grew up playing football and baseball, um, my entire childhood into high school. I played football all through high school. Um, when I got to high school, I switched from baseball to lacrosse, um, which I, I loved playing lacrosse, um, but was kind of late to that game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I was always kind of one of those people that growing up in my household, you were, you were a Washington football fan. It was blasphemous to be anything other than that. Um, so I kind of grew up like immersed in that culture, but I love playing the game. Um, I was never one to be in maybe this kind of place towards your like conception of me not wearing jerseys or anything like that. Like I, I love the sport itself. Um, but I, and I love playing it, but I don't spend a ton of time catching up on it. My sister is really into it. And so she kind of keeps me in it. And it's that relationship that has kept me around. I will say that um, one sport that I do try to keep up with as much as I can is UFC. Um, I wrestled Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for a couple of years at the end of high school. My I played outside linebacker in high school. My uh, linebacker coach was like, you got to try this this thing out. I think you'd love it. And I kind of fell in love with um, it's like physical chess, you know, and um, it just the, the creativity involved, the discipline that's necessary. Um, I feel like sports and the way that athletes dedicate themselves to it is completely analogous to the way that I work in art. Um, and I do not think that I would be able to approach art in the way that I do, or at least try to, had I not kind of been fully immersed in sports culture my entire life. Um, I just think that there's like a, a uh, uh, yeah, again, back to this idea of discipline and kind of like working through adversity um, that I try to keep in the the making aspect of my practice um, that I, I wouldn't have learned had it not been forced on me <laughs> through playing football, especially, you know, that, um, and jujitsu too. That's pretty amazing. I, so you, you, we were in a class together last semester, last year, um, the interdisciplinary critique. And I'm pretty sure in that class, when I was talking about my drawings, I brought up this kind of like concept that I came to grad school with was what's the professional athlete's version of being a grad student, you know? And so hearing you say that was like, oh, I imagine Jordan gets me. He understands where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that like to be, if you want to be really good at something, you have to give it your all, you know? And I, I like, I personally, like I, I'm an addict, you know, like, and, um, so I have to be really careful about that too, okay. because it, it can it can go off the edge where it has been a recent focus of mine is kind of reeling myself back a little bit and allowing myself to live a life outside of the studio. Um, because 
you know, like if I guess the the correct parallel to this in sports would be like if you train every day as hard as you can, you never allow your body to repair. Right. So it's the same thing with art. And also with art, if, if all I'm doing is waking up every day and coming immediately to the studio and staying here until 10 o'clock at night, going home just to sleep and doing that every day, I'm not getting any sort of new input from which to draw creative inspiration. So um, allowing myself opportunities to do new things or go for a hike or do something like that um, is critical to my ability to come up with new ideas, one, but also be effective in the studio. Like if I just find that the studio becomes another job or something like that, then I'm, I'm losing my interest and my drive to be there. It's just that I feel like I have to be here. It's not because I want to be. So by breaking it up a little bit, I found that I'm far more effective because I know that I have a limited amount of time here. So I come and I you know, do what I need to do and um, all around far more productive. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of what you just express I found as well, and the way that I align it or analyze it is, you know, when you're looking, if you if you want to make that comparison of, you know, the the professional athlete or the athlete's approach to their sport and how does that align with being an artist and our approach to our practice, um, it's not a one to one comparison. Like the right. the thing that I've found that 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 I have to realize is, you know. A, if you're looking at it in the fil the realm of a professional athlete, they're usually doing all right with money. So like there's that aspect that they're not, and they have a season to work around and they have these like very specific goals. But as a, as an artist, I mean, we have goals, we have like ideas that we want, but it's, but it's kind of tied in with life a lot. So yeah. it's really, so you have to find the, the way to interpret that comparison and not try to make it like oh i'm just gonna work every day in the studio it's like what's that interpretation of of an athlete you know or something right totally and i think that one of the most illuminating experiences i had as an art viewer was um i they had a a mark rothko show up at the harvard museum this was probably like four or five years ago or something um but anyway, so they had one room that was just completely outfitted with all of his amazing, just massive paintings. Um, and then they had another room that was all of his notebooks and things. And, um, you know, I think it was specific to him because he's always historically portrayed as this person who just has these like religious epiphanies on a canvas and he, it just it just happens and it comes out of him. And he's essentially this medium for a higher level. Right. But what this other room showed me was that no this guy had hundreds and thousands of color swatches like this man dedicated his entire life to like exploring color fields right and so like seeing the amount of effort and research that he put into what people s seem to think are like very simple paintings it's like no this guy is just like everybody else he put in his time he put in the effort and you see the results, you know, you stand in one in front of one of those paintings and you feel it. Um, but that experience for me kind of leveled the playing field, but also made me aware that, you know, obviously there are people who are incredibly talented, but people like me, like you, if you put in the work, you can get there, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. When did, was, so for me, like sports and art were kind of like the two things that I could do and so they kind of ran parallel to, like the entire time 
like as early as I can remember. I can't even, there's no, not really a moment where they were, one was not happening while the other one was. Is that a similar kind of experience for you? Oh, I came to art really late. Okay. Um, I came to art, um, even, I mean, I was always kind of like doodling and things, but never taking it seriously. Um, I didn't come to art until I was living in Mongolia, so after undergrad. Um, and then when I came back from the Peace Corps is when I really started to dedicate myself to it. Um, so I've been kind of seriously pursuing this for about, I don't know, six years, six or seven years now. Um, so I'm kind of late to the game. Okay. Um, that's it. Man, you're just, every time you say something, you drop another thing like Peace Corps, Mongolia, like that could be probably another hour podcast all by itself just to talk about those experiences. So we'll just leave some things to mystery and uh, maybe revisit them down the line when we, when we do this again or something, but but that's awesome. The the thing I wanted to ask. So since you did come to our, like you said, it's been six or seven years, like you've made that connection like we've already been discussing for the last 12 minutes about how to kind of align sports and art together in a, in a way. And I think we got a good handle on how that works for you, but externally, like coming at it, like, do you feel, have you felt any, or have you had any experiences of the external world of it being a polarizing idea to try to align those two together? Like, do you get, do you see any resistance or do you see just like, how possibly other artists like because what i find is oftentimes it's a lot of artists tend to there is a there is a a being of artists that part of why they are artists is a rejection to like the sports world and to that kind of things so have you seen anything like that in your in your process coming to it late maybe even like, yeah, I mean, for me personally, it's always just made sense. Like, it's just very clear that those things are related in the ways that you go about pursuing those things are related. Um, I mean, I I just have never really thought about it unless somebody, like, brings up the fact that they, like, couldn't imagine me, like, playing football or whatever it, it is, you know. And that simply is just, like, a social, you know, assumption about the types of people that do those things. And I... I don't know, I was talking to somebody the other day about um, just people that were attracted to um, personality wise. And, you know, I'm always really interested in people who can kind of imbibe these seemingly contradictory ideologies, just because, you know, like it takes a relatively complex understanding of things for those two to coexist. I'm not saying that like art and sports is is like a a complex idea to wrap your mind around, but, there, I, I just think that there are certain things that people come to the table with making assumptions about types of people and what they'd be into and not into. And those are just yeah. bullshit. You no, know, it's just random. Yeah, I get it. I guess I, it's probably just a personal thing as well. Like every time I bring up something sports related in the in the kind of umbrella of being an artist, I always yeah. feel like everybody's just rolling their eyes at me. That's just like... <laughs> Okay, so I, I guess I do have to qualify this slightly because, like, like I said, the one sport that I do really pay attention to is the UFC, um, and I hate everything about the UFC <laughs> except for the sport itself. Like, I think that the sport is like the most pure expression of creativity, athleticism, intelligence, um, but the uh, the social sphere within which it functions yeah. is 
typically, I don't want to make huge generalizations here, but typically very toxic. Yeah. Uh, the organization itself does not do, uh, uh, is not socially very beneficial, I guess, is a, is a, an okay way to put it. But, um, yeah, so I do like, I mean, I totally understand where people are coming from because typically those cultures can be very toxic, um, yeah, yeah. very masculine and, um, not productive. And I, I think that there there's an opportunity there, especially within the, these these social times, to for us who hopefully don't fall into those things to to work from within, you know, and to like change people's understanding on both sides of it. That there are people who don't fall into those tropes, um, but then the people who do, who are also inside of it, that we're inter- engaging with, open their eyes to the fact that what they're doing is not okay. You know, I'm gonna change gears here a little. Um... The second, okay, second of the three. We spent a lot of time on that. That was that's great. I love it. Podcast, yes, getting <laughs> just go. Um, so you've expressed in, um, I think it was one of our group meetings or a couple weeks ago, that you felt the David Blaine um, balloon event was like the greatest moment. I don't know in in recent times. So I, yeah. I, I need you to sell me on that. Like, I'm not convinced. So I want to yeah. find out why you're, you think this is such a great moment and what it, what, what it did for you. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, a lot of that is stemming from kind of this rejection that into like all of high art has to be highly intellectualized, which we're fed in this institution. Right. Which I just think is absolute crap. But, um, what I found so amazing about what he was doing was that one, just in terms of his career, I felt like it, this was kind of the culmination of a lot of his previous performances, um, both in like the physical endurance, the way that he trained for it. Um, I felt like the performance itself was such an interesting combination of artistic aesthetic, um, engineering and daredevil, you know, that like, um, we oftentimes we're talking about this like divide between like sports and art, right? Like that, that often happens too between art and science. And in my mind, those are just two different ways of exploring different types of ideas. They don't need to be separate. I feel like they can help each other most of the time. And so I felt like what he was doing was kind of showing how these things can come together to create something that's really beautiful. Um, And also too, I just felt like his intent was, was so pure, you know, like, he was giving the entire world an opportunity to sit and live one of their childhood dreams. And we just got to experience that together as a uniform experience for 25 minutes. And like, what more beautiful of an act is there than that, than allowing us to just all be children for 20 minutes, you know? And I I felt like that was, it, it was just such a kind gesture. Um, and, you know, this idea that like magic is not art, like I, if in my mind, like when art is functioning at its highest, it is trying to be magic, you know? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I'm so I just like, I, I don't know. I, I felt like I was, you know, maybe being a bit histrionic because I felt like there was such a pushback against it being a performance art piece um, within the institution. And I didn't feel like that was fair to him. And I just felt like, it made me like you couldn't fuck with my vibe all day that day after having watched that like i was in such a good mood like i was walking on cloud nine you know and like what what higher 
functioning could you ask for out of a work of art to elevate me to that level? I, I don't think that there is any, you know, and um, I just I just felt like he it, it needed due respect for what he was accomplishing, you know? I think I think you might have convinced me. Um, I'll have to revisit it and spend more time with it and see, because I do agree with that, the intersections of ideas with, you know, a performance and science and, you know, the endurance and that all, like, I love that. I love that. Where I got a little hung up with it was um, that when he had this moment that it was, maybe it was a, a I'm a victim of circumstance because the moment I turned it on or looked at it, he was had his like daughter or something. And he yeah. says like, oh, all my things always scare you. And I don't want to do that. I want to make something beautiful. But to me, this was just as scary. And the way he presented it was like, it, it didn't feel like um, a thing of just beauty. It was like all that, that kind of like veil of entertainment and stuff. And it's like, ah, who are you really doing this for? Is it you're doing it for your daughter? Or are you doing it for yourself and entertainment? So that's where I got a little hung up. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess that, that like, that's totally true. I, I did have a bit of hesitation with that as well. It's like, man, his daughter could be about to watch her father fall to his death, you know, but I guess to be fair, like we all make art for selfishly motivated reasons. You know, he had his motivations for doing that, which were typically, you know, he wanted to push himself, you yeah. know, in, in his practice. Um, and also, you know, you you can you can play it as you know he wanted to give his daughter something, which yeah. I'm sure that he did. You know, to, to deny him that I don't think is fair. Yeah. But we also yeah. like can acknowledge that like he was getting off on this too. You know, <laughs> and that that was like a huge motive, motivating factor. Um, but I don't think that it, it should detract from the the seriousness seriousness with which we take it as a performance art piece. You know, I think I don't know. Right now, and I think this could change tomorrow if I kind of think about it, but sometimes I feel like I come at everything with a little like kind of pessimism and jadedness and like, and that's probably, it caught me like, you know, just like, I think that's where I got caught up into is like wanting to be like, yeah, whatever, dude, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, and I think that that was another reason that I loved it um, was because it was just optimistic, you know? Um, I was very, very fortunate um, last summer to be able to go to Venice for the Biennale. And um, one thing that was just so, and I don't, I don't want to articulate this in a way that, that seems to suggest um, that the works that were presenting themselves as critical or pessimistic um, are not valid or have or don't have any sort of value i'm not i'm not saying that at all it just seemed like walking through the pavilions it was just overwhelmingly pessimistic mm. um and the pieces that i enjoyed the most were the ones that broke free of that and at least offered some sort of optimism you know i think that there's a difference between critiquing and not offering any sort of solution or i mean i don't even think that you have to have a specific solution but but at least suggesting that there is something else you know that that we can work through this and um you know especially with what's happening right now i, I think that we need we need that we need that positivity we need that love we need that optimism and i think that that's again why i gravitated towards this piece so much was that it it seemed to be purely motivated from from that love you know yeah there's a there's a similarity. So you said you kind of came to art like six years ago 
in a lot of ways. And we'll get more, maybe get more into that in a second. But um, for me, even though, you know, creative processes has been with me the whole time, but I took a break from visual art for a while because I was a musician, like really focused on music. And now that I'm back in this environment of school, of art, of trying to remember and get the, you know, the, the, uh, I don't know, definitions and just kind of terms and all the stuff and reminding myself of all the artists. What you just brought up was this, this pessimism in artwork is what I've been feeling a lot of in just this kind of modern moment we're in with what we're kind of being exposed to. So it's like, I've, I have to agree, like that idea of like wanting there to be, I think it's worthwhile to like not just complain through art, which I feel like is what happens a lot. It's like, here's the problem. Let's just, just like point out the problem, but also reminding ourselves that it's worth thinking of the solution, which I don't necessarily see a lot of, but it, it definitely happens. And I'm trying to remind myself of that too. Cause so like, basically I just want to say, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that art especially has been kind of stuck in that postmodern cynicism for a couple of decades now, you know? And, and I think that the reason is because it's, it's easy. You know, we see that in the comment sections of YouTube all the time. It's like, it's really easy to, to be a cynic. It's, it's, it's difficult to put something new out there, you know? And, um, so I try to accept that challenge, um, in my own practice. And I, and I really have been, just gravitating towards work that does the same that um, and I, I again like I don't think it's necessary to to say that you have a solution you know I, I, I would be <laughs> naive to say that I have any sort of understanding of what's going on or you know for that matter a solution um, but perhaps giving people an opportunity to feel something other than cynicism will allow the person who is fucking smarter than me to come up with the solution. Yeah. You know? um, it, it's just easy to get stuck in. I think right now it feels to me like the institution all the way across the board, just belief, like ideology, schooling, gallery settings, they, they dwell in that. They like, they like enjoy that cynicism more than, maybe we do so it's it's like hard to it's going to be hard to break out because it's like almost like it doesn't because if you get positive or if you get another way of looking at it i've found it gets written off as cliche or it gets written off as something like not art you know right. it's like a different and it's like ah but i want to i want to be positive i want to i want somebody to like get pumped you know <laughs> like, off, but you know and not have it be just brushed off you know yeah, I mean, that's very true. Like, I do think that um, it it's, it's very challenging to provide an experience that is optimistic, but also doesn't fall into the, like, the easy tropes and um, kind of cliched atmosphere that a lot of it can, you know, and that's why it's so hard. And yeah. a lot of people steer away from it because it's way more challenging to succeed in that manner. Um, you know, and I, I like my work is typically received as being like dark, you know, and, and I, so I'm not like sitting here saying that, like, um, it also needs like, I guess the, um, the, the optimism doesn't necessarily have to equate to happiness or positivity. You know, I, I think that there are other ways of presenting emotional experiences that seem or feel valuable. You know, I think that, um, a lot of times the the works that i experience 
um, and even just the dialogues that I have with people that are are so cynical and pessimistic, like I do think that that has a place, but a lot of times it doesn't feel productive, you know? Um, and so I think it's, it's providing an emotional experience that feels productive or enriching to someone, regardless of what that emotional experience is, um, is, is the kind of the main point, you know? This is all my personal opinion. I don't, I don't know if this is fucking right, but uh, it's, it's just what I've been noticing, you know, and, and kind of feeling. Yeah, no, I agree. I And then, I don't know, for me, what what you just mentioned, I, I, it reminds me of the challenge of also not being like, what is the term didactic, right? In trying to like teach something in a way and, and try to leave it open. And yeah, that's, it's, it's complicated for sure. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what kind of role you want to assume as artist, you know. Um, there's all different kinds of art, and yeah. you just have to decide what um, what your interests are, where you think that your your personal tool belt is the most uh, beneficial, I guess. Um, you know, uh, my work, I kind of, like, actively try to negate any sort of, like, overall narrative, you know, um, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I think you just, you, you started to answer my next question and this isn't one of the three, this is, I'm jumping ahead, but it's okay. because we haven't done this yet and we're already 33 minutes into this. So, <laughs> but it's like, what, how do you define like your work? Like when somebody comes up to you or a new person that you're, you tell them you're an artist and they say, oh, what do you do? What is your answer to that? Like. Uh, man, uh, yeah, the million dollar question, um, especially now as I'm trying to kind of like hone everything in and start thinking about thesis, like I really do need to come up and uh, have have the, the answer to this. Um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, if I'm being honest, I kind of change my answer depending on the type of person that I'm talking to, right? Uh, because, um, so I think that there are certain there are certain things that my work does or attempts to do um, that you know it, it kind of I work around memory um, I work around narrative in a way that kind of gives you an opportunity to create the narrative yourself based off of your own personal narrative. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the way that objects communicate with one another and how I could manipulate those objects to kind of suggest um, a narrative without making it obvious what that narrative is. Um, you know, I think that mostly my answer is that I'm, I make small installations or tableaus that kind of function around memory, objects, object communication, communication through object um, and materiality has become more of a focus of mine um, as a means of making those other things happen, not necessarily being a focus, just something that I kind of geek out on. Um, but again, so this is kind of elucidating for you that I have a lot of work to do <laughs> before I write my pieces. I need to really pin those things down. Um, I think that there are threads, you know, a lot of my work recently has been referential to the body. Um, and that is certainly something that I'm going to have to address. Um, it's been something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, the body as kind of this method of communication as my most like base means of communication um but, but yeah i mean like 
in terms of what I what I want the work to do or like what I, the experience that I would like to create for the viewer, um, you know, I really, I would just like to create an experience that on a very base level elicits an emotional response from my viewer that creates this um, sense that what they're experiencing is somehow familiar, but they can't put their finger on why that is. Um, and if I do that, then I, I think that I'm successful. You know, um, if I present something and it doesn't vibe with people or it doesn't elicit anything, and then then I've failed. You know, um, so that, I try to think of it in just in very base terms, like either it, it functions for you or it doesn't. Why or why not? Um, what it's communicating, I, I'm like interested in hearing, um, but I don't know what that I kind of leave that open. When you're when you're trying to approach this idea of familiarity. Do you rely on how much of it is a split between your feeling familiar about it for yourself versus the reaction you get? And and is there like a, um, is there, uh, um, yeah, I don't know, between. Yeah, I mean, I think that the trick, at least that I've learned, is that it always has to be for yourself. And if, if you like, if you, if you remain true to that, um, then it, it will more often than not work. Um, you kind of create this internal consistency or coherency that I think comes across in the way that it's presented um, that, you know, somebody looking on at it may say, I don't know what the hell this is, but um, it feels valid. You yeah. know, like I'm not questioning it as a thing. Um, and I think that that's really important. You know, some of the artists that I admire the most, I don't resonate with all of their work, but I would never be able to walk up to something and 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 deny it its itness, <laughs> if that makes any sense, right? Like, I don't know what this is. It doesn't vibe with me, but like, it feels like I I don't I couldn't critique it, you know, um, and I'm gonna sit with it for a long period of time thinking about it, thinking about how I relate to it or don't, um, you know, like a, a, like a Robert Gober or somebody like that. And, you know, like, like David Lynch, I think is such a great example of this. Like some of his movies for me just fall totally flat. And some of them I'm like, this is like a, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but he's like the, the consistency internally in each of his films is so strong that, um, I can't fault it, you know, even if I don't like resonate emotionally with it. So and I just think that that takes, that takes uh, courage to be able to do that. And I admire that. So I'm going to ask you the third of my exclusive questions for you. So <laughs> sure. again, I mentioned earlier that we uh, um, had a class together and I noticed during that class while you were taking notes, your script, the way that you write down your notes is a, has a very unique style to it. And uh -huh. it's almost like, to me, it looks like the way that somebody would work on their signature is the way that you write all your notes. So I wanted to see if there's, if you've ever been, if anybody's ever brought something up about this to you before and how have you developed your own like handwriting style? Like where did, did that come from somewhere? Cause like, I know if I relate it to the signature thing, I spent 
years working on my signature. So, and yeah. then, and then I've also have certain letter forms that I only do. Like when I do a, a lowercase D, I circle around and don't put the stem back down. I just kind of go up and leave it. And there's a couple other letters that I, I've intentionally done specific because I just wanted to. And I, I feel like there's something like that for the way that you write. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my notebook. Like you're talking about like that. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> no, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I mean, people have commented on it before that they like it, but they can't read it, you know? Um, and, <laughs> and so I guess it's just kind of naturally developed over the years. Um, I'm left-handed, so okay. that kind of uh, plays into the types of utensils that I use to write, but also the way that I write because you can't smear it and things like that. Um, I, I, if I'm just writing and I know that it's just for me and I just need it to be a mental trigger, it doesn't need to be totally legible. It looks a very specific way. I, I can like kind of hone it in a little bit if I need somebody else to, if it needs to be legible for somebody else. I mean, in college, I would constantly get like, this took me forever to read. You need to rectify this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. Um, yeah, mostly it just feels natural. And okay. it's kind of just become like a thing. I haven't like uh, spent much time trying to develop it. It just is what comes out. Because I noticed as well, it's like it it takes up more of the page than I think most people write. It's similar to kind of when I take notes. I, I don't try to fill in each line. I don't even pay attention to the lines. I just write on it. It's basically usually in the same direction as the lines, but it's not like a thing. But um, yeah. so uh, what? There's probably some similarity there, especially when you showed me that page that you just showed me. But it's like you know, spaced out. You're not trying to fill up the page with all the notes from that one lecture, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I um, yeah, I hate uh, lined paper, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that like I also I don't I try not to take many notes. Um, and I just like write down little things that'll help trigger a, a memory or something that I need to I need to reference later on. Um, so yeah, that, I guess that would kind of explain why it looks a bit haphazard <laughs> because they are, they're not like full coherent thoughts. Usually it's just like a word or two or a phrase or something like that. Cool, I'm just curious. I just wanted to see if there was any. <laughs> it's interesting that like you, you noticed that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You mentioned like, having to write more legibly like for me like like um i write illegibly totally as a defense mechanism because i'm dyslexic and i can't spell so it's yeah. like i just like write like this weird chicken scratch that oftentimes i can't even read so you can't be held accountable for it yeah <laughs> but, but, yeah i just want you know because i know i'm going to spell things wrong and i don't want people to see i'm going to spell things wrong i get embarrassed about it so i just kind of like just scribble away you know <laughs> to you man i love that so yeah so what do you do what do you do when so you work in like we mentioned earlier about you know you can't go 100 percent all the time into your art making because you need to so what are the things that you do to decompress from whether it be your art making process or just you know if you're a news watcher or whatever or if you had a rough conversation with a family member like where do you go what do you do when you need to just kind of like clear the slate like how do you get how do you do that 
Man, no, this is funny because, uh, so as I mentioned, I have an acupuncture appointment right after this. And uh, acupuncture is something that I have just started doing. Um, and I, I've been interested in it for a while, uh, just in terms of uh, some sort of like way of dealing with depression and anxiety. And um, so one of the first meetings that I had, uh, I was having a conversation with the acupuncturist and they were like, uh, it was basically just breaking down my day or whatever. And they were like, so do you have fun? Like, do you experience joy? <laughs> like, Man, that, that hurts I, because it's so true. You know, um, I'm not, I'm not great. Um, I'm just now trying to really focus on those things. Um, but I do, I run is, and I've been doing that for a long time. Um, and that's kind of my meditation. I also meditate. So like my morning routine is I wake up, I meditate, I drink coffee and I read, and then I go about my day. Um, I promised myself that when I moved out, I'm from Virginia and uh, I promised myself that when I moved out here, I'd learn how to surf. So I, and I've been trying to do that. Um, I am terrible at it. But I have found that in terms of its ability to just placate my thoughts, um, it's been about as good as, as running mm-hmm. for me. So I do that. I enjoy hiking. Um, I don't know. I'm like, I, I am obsessed with music. So I do a lot of listening to music. And um, well, yeah, I'll have yeah. to get some greatest hits from you. But I wanted to, are you a believer? So I'm a believer in, I think they call it blue energy. But it's the idea of like being around bodies of water like helps. And like whenever I go to the beach here in San Diego, I love that kind of metaphysical aspect of getting into the water. And it's like to me, like the 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 ocean is just this massive body of energy in a sense, you know? And I try to like just give reverence to that and, and recognize it and go like, hey, I'm here. I could use some of your energy, you know, if you want to give me some. I'm I'm open to it, you know. Is it when you're in your surfing or anything? Does is there any realm of that for you as well? Totally. I mean, I think that, that there's absolutely something to that, uh, and I'm very sensitive to that as well. And I I think that you know it's it's humbling, you know, because the ocean is this massive, terrifying unit of energy um, that I think there's something about being constantly humbled by that but also being in the presence of that kind of like repetitive energy of the waves mm-hmm. uh, kind of calms me down and I can get in tune with that. And that really helps, you know, kind of like after watching the David Blaine thing, if I go surfing in the morning, I feel pretty good all day. You know, like it, it's pretty hard to mess with my mood. I, I feel kind of in my groove, you know. When you were in Virginia, did you live by the water as well? I didn't, no. Yeah. Um, I, my family's from West Virginia and we grew up near some rivers, so we would go like canoeing and stuff. Um, and I do, I, I also feel kind of a similar, you know, the, the ocean's a different vibe, but, uh, rivers, I can accomplish essentially the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have more questions. Give me a second. Where was I? Where? Okay. Where are you right now? You're in like a studio space. What is it? Just describe what's yeah. going on. Are you on campus? Oh yeah, you are. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, very fortunate in that Richard Keeley allowed me to occupy a vacant studio space down in sculpture. So I have a space down here that I've been working out of. 
um, that kind of allows me to exist independently, um, which has been a bit of a change because, you know, one of the things that I, I was a little bit hesitant about in the beginning of the program, just because I'm a pretty solitary, isolated guy. Um, we have a shared studio space in, in the furniture program, um, but I certainly came to really love that aspect of it, just kind of constantly being in conversation and dialogue about what you're working on, what other people are working on is just like mental gymnastics constantly. And, um, you know, not many people are on campus right now. And so like, I'll come in, work in my studio, and then I go home and I live alone. So it's just like, it, it's been it's been a struggle. And I mean, another reason why I've been trying to do a lot of work on, on my emotional well being lately, as I'm sure most people are, you know, but trying to take a very like, tangible in concrete, uh, active approach to it. Yeah, I have to be honest for myself. I want to be honest. I'm just gonna be honest. You know, the, the that's one of my minor. I don't know where on the scale it hits, but it is a degree of a pain point. The shared studio. I really, really wish that while on campus, I could have my own space. That's just my space and not have yeah. to deal with it. Because um, I have to have a shared studio too. Um, but it's totally because I I can't stand being watched while I'm working. I just yeah. cannot stand it. And I, I imagine it's like, so you were in the wood studio for a while and there's like six, at least six like set setups. And I understand like, because it's like the wood shop, there's this more, you, it, it makes sense to have a shared space because of how woodworking works. You're sharing the, the tools anyway, you know? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I don't know where I wanted to go with that. I just wanted to say it, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I totally agree. And I, I'm the same. That was my hesitancy with it in the beginning was that, like, for me to be able to get comfortable enough to be creative and productive, I need to usually be alone. Like, I need to fucking dance if I want to just have a solo dance party for 15, 20 minutes and then go about my work, you know, and it's hard. To, I mean, some people can pull that off, like they don't have the self-conscious issues, but uh, I'm certainly not that person. I'm working on it. But um, yeah, I get you. It it was it um, it was challenging at times, um, but I think that I got a lot out of it, too. You know, um, I really did. And so I, I owe a lot to that, I think. Yeah. I'm sure it would be it's beneficial to me in some way too but but um part of honestly part of why I applied to the program I did was because previously there was only one graduate and it seemed like a program that wasn't getting a lot of applicants so I was kind of I was kind of like oh maybe I will get my own space and then we have three you know current yeah. and so I was like oh I got to share okay bummer yeah. but that's also part of why I'm like this pandemic moment we're in I, I get to work at my home studio and have an excuse to do it and not worry about it. And I'm all by myself here in a lot of yeah. ways. So it just kind of makes it hard. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, you're also quite good at extending yourself to have conversations with people. You know, I'm not that way. Like, if you don't come up to me and talk to me, I'm not going to do it because I get anxious. So <laughs> yeah. like, I'm always happy to have conversations with people and I love people. It's just that like, it. it takes a lot of emotional energy for me to like go up or extend myself in a way that says hey let's have a conversation you know um, but you seem to be pretty good about that going back to that statement you made this comment contradictory ideology earlier which i wrote down i like that but i i actually try to live in that space in a lot of ways uh, with just i love not being predictable and one of the things that i feel like is part of that is because 
I do reach out to people, especially as I've gotten older, I've been able to do it more. Um, but I am a high introvert. Like I, I need to be in a hole by myself for an extended period of time before I feel normal, you know? And then, but I have been, re, you know, cause I think a lot of people that just meet me, especially maybe in this environment at school, they could see me doing that reaching out and wanting to connect. And they're thinking like, oh, you must be more introverted. And then when I perform or I'm on stage in some way, they see that kind of side of me. And it's like, yeah, I, but no, yeah. <laughs> But I, but I was alone for a week before. That. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, so much so that it like can uh, at times become problematic in friendships or relationships, whatever. When it's like it's not personal. It's never. I mean, it rarely ever personal, right? Like it's just that I need to be alone for the next three or four days to recenter myself and yeah. emerge a productive member of society. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm a I'm a huge introvert. Yeah. Do you? Uh, you have a time constraint. Do you mind if we run a little bit longer uh, no, than cool. than five? Where because I have a few questions that I feel like we'll go over. Probably not much longer than like twenty minutes more. So, yeah. okay, cool. Um, the main I, I wanted to ask you. We've kind of dabbled on it a little bit with the studio stuff, but what's been since we've been in this pandemic moment with school, with life, with everything? What's for you? Um, if I can be kind of broad about it. What is the kind of been the greatest hits or greatest not hits of this moment of, you know, time with the pandemic? Like has like how have you been reacting to how it's affected the school? Has it affected your artwork in a different kind of way? Like what are some of the things that has, has changed because of being in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of coattailing off of what we were just talking about, one of the greatest realizations that I've had is that while I am a like serious introvert, I do need people. You know, like I, when it comes down to it, I'm a human who has like needs and some of those are social, you know, and um, I think that it was easy for me to kind of brush that off because I was constantly dealing with people every day. Um, but it is something that I need and something that I really enjoy, you know, and so recognizing that about myself and realizing that um, I need to schedule those things. I need, I need to make real connections with people. Um, I mean, may they, they might be like sparse, <laughs> but I do need them. Um, and that I have, I don't think that I could have realized without um, this, this current situation. Um, in terms of my work, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I was pretty, like I, I mm, make sure I say this right. Like I, um, I was pretty, I, I, I know the way that I work and I need to be in the space with the machines. And um, so that was frustrating um, at first. And, you know, I, I, I try to paint and do 2D things, but I'm just not engaged with them in the way that I am with sculpture. And um, so it's been nice being back on campus. Um, but I, I think that, again, it just it, it kind of uh, reiterated the fact that like I need my hands to be seriously involved like I'm a very physical person um, and that requires me having a space with machines and um, just thinking about post-graduation like what type of studio I'm going to need you know um, obviously you can adapt and your work can change but I think that I, I'm pretty uh, pretty knowledgeable about what I'm interested in 
Um, and so we'll work very hard to try to make a space that can kind of accommodate those types of questions and work happen. Um, I'm not exactly sure where that will be or how that will happen, but we're trying to figure that out. Well, that's a good that's a good segue into my last little group of questions that I'll ask is about just the MFA process um, yeah. and see kind of where your mind was at and is at based on being in the program now for three years. And um, you did a three, it was three years pretty much yeah. solid, right? Yeah. So basically like, just give me the, the idea of why MFA and why SDSU? Like those, they kind of work together. Sure. Um, so I, like I said, so in my undergraduate, I studied philosophy and neuroscience. And um, then I went into the Peace Corps. And when I came back, uh, I got a job working for a jeweler, a bench jeweler, and that was like my first uh, foray into craft and art. Um, and so I apprenticed with her for about three years. And then I moved up to Detroit and uh, learned blacksmithing and kind of large scale steel fabrication and was working there for another almost three years before I just um, came out here. And I think for me, it was more about like, okay, I'm starting to develop this uh, material vernacular, but I'm, I've only been making other people's work. Um, and so I was just interested to see what would happen if I could do whatever I wanted, you know, cause I really didn't know. And I had been so steeped in the craft metal world that I thought that I was going to be making steel work my entire time here. Um, and so my bosses in Detroit have both had their MFAs. One went to Cranbrook and one went to VCU. Um, and I didn't know anything about the art world or the art education. I was kind of going into it blind. Um, and so they helped me kind of pinpoint some programs, but in terms of sculpture programs that have a material focus or like I always describe SDSU's furniture program as a sculpture program for people who have a background in a traditional craft. Um, and so I think that, you know, the last 10 or 15 years in contemporary sculpture, I'm going to make a gross generalization here, but for the most part, um, you see a lot of like found object assemblage um, and making uh, for me and my relationship with material is super important to the way that I express myself, that I was looking for a program that understood that and would help me to articulate that better. Um, another like probably the deciding factor for me was the my cohort you know like i loved the idea of being in a room with people who under like even though i'm going into a room with a bunch of woodworkers and my knowledge is metal their understanding of how to build an object is similar so like we can sit down and have conversations about the engineering of a piece of work and um, materially, how would you express this better? You know, what is what is the way that you would go about doing this if you're looking to, uh, you know, put focus on this material quality of wood or metal or whatever? And I think that this program is really unique in the country. That there 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 isn't really another. I mean, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, is really the only other program that I, I think is similar in that way. Um, and so it was kind of a no-brainer for me and what I was interested in. Um, I'm making, 
I cannot um, like imagine making what I'm making now at the outset of it, um, but it feels correct. And um, I don't think that I could have gotten to where I am now had I not been specifically at this this program. Well, that's a good segue into my next question is, is like, what was your perception coming in and what basically um, has changed or what has you know, how has the program affected you? Or even just like, what is something that's like amazing that you didn't really realize was going to happen? Is there anything that you can point to in this three years that was different than what you initially thought of? Um, well, I think, I think my Peace Corps experience was really good in that it taught me to not have expectations going into things because they're only going to end up being a hindrance, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried really hard to not have uh, a ton of expectations about where I would end up, which I think was really helpful, um, and just kind of letting it go. I think that um, one thing that has been really helpful to me um, has just been a change in mentality surrounding the way that I work um, in that, and I've talked about this a little bit, about like, because of my undergraduate education, I think like I, I had the very kind of like scientific method of approaching artwork in that like this this is my my problem. This is the thing that I'm interested in. I'm going to go about it this way. And this is the visual representation of that thing. Um, and what I found was that I work much better just trusting my gut and just really just kind of dropping that and um, the way that I'm working now, which has been problematic in my ability to articulate what the work is or is about, um, is that, you know, I'll like, I'll have an, an idea will come and it'll be either a form or a color or a material uh, relationship that just feels right. And so I'll get that thing in front of me and then I'll build off of that and the entire process I don't limit it to, you know, like I may have a totally different understanding of where the thing is going from where it ends up and that's completely okay. Just allowing the thing to develop into the most potent thing that it can potentially be and trusting your gut the entire way um, was a very scary notion for me. Um, but I do think that it's yielding much, much better work. Um, that isn't confined to like we were talking about those cliches or or like it, it couldn't have better been expressed as a bit of theory that you could have read in a book. You know, like the reason that we're doing visual art is because it's it's expressing things that can't be written down, you know, so um, allowing it to be its own thing and like thinking about, you know, all of the theory and but like allowing like traditionally non-academic things to be part of that theoretical research too, like all your comic books and all of these things that have nuggets in it that um, inform the work but aren't driving it. You know, let the work drive itself and, and let that be a process of just what feels right and learning to trust that, you know, I think was huge for me and I think extends itself beyond the studio too and, and just in the way that I live my life is just like, if kind of flying by the seat of your pants a little bit, but I think that like the, where you end up feels more true, you know, um, just kind of trusting what feels right and going with your gut most of the time and trying to do it with an open heart, you know, and, and usually the work ends up better for it and your relationships with people end up better for it. What has been the most challenging part of being a graduate student, um, from something 
whatever you want to share, but if it's something related to the institution, if it's finding ways to pay for it, if it's, you know, just something totally different, like, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's hard because, you know, it's, it's really easy to get caught up in the like bureaucratic frustrations of the institution, right. Or like what the, um, the expectations are and trying to fulfill those, um, and so I think that the challenge for me has been, um, you know, adhering to those where it's necessary, but for the most part, just recognizing that like, and I think it was good for me and I'm sure you can relate to this, like coming to school a little bit later in life and having worked in the industry for a while, um, this is a blessing, right? Like we have three years to do nothing but exactly what I wanna do every day. Like that's pretty incredible. So I think that it's really difficult to um, kind of keep that as as the forefront um, focus and not allow all of the other institutional frustrations to seep into that because, you know, the the studio is like your sacred space. Like it has to be this kind of like pure space where you feel totally free to do whatever you want, you know? Um, and so being a productive graduate student who's helping other people and helping, uh, I don't know, progress the program while also like, I, I just get so emotionally caught up in that. I'm like an emotional sponge, you know, like an, a pure empath in that way. And so I have to be really careful about how much I include myself in those things and how I let them affect me. Um, and because it does affect my work and if I'm anxious and frustrated, I can't work. and. Um, I think that that's, that's been a challenge for me, but also again, like how that experience has kind of filtered out into the way that I live my life. I feel like I'm much, I have a much better understanding of myself and how much of those things I can take and how much I'm willing to, to give to people in that way before I become just like a, a torpid, like emotional, you know, puddle that's just not productive for anybody, you know, um, so it has been helpful in that way, but I think that it, it is difficult for me to to kind of figure out like, wait, no, you should do that thing, even though you don't really want to do it because it, it benefits a lot more people than just yourself. <laughs> and I'm like a pretty selfish person, you know? Um, so kind of navigating the, the institution while remaining true to what I want to be doing is a challenge, but I don't know, ultimately, it's been it's been a very positive experience for me. I'm super glad that I did it. Um, yeah, I, it was. It's been it's been great. It's been hard, but uh, I've really enjoyed it. You just got to know where to put your efforts. You know, yeah, hard. yeah. I I definitely um, relate to all that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I have one, basically one last real question, and then one like maybe two fun questions. Um, sure. It's the, the idea of through your, you know, process of being an artist and, um, you know, you're in grad school now. So there's like a lot of emphasis on this moment in time, but if there's another idea or moment that you feel, or if this is it, um, that you feel you've learned the most about being an artist, where, where is that for you? Where do you think, you've picked up is there or can you name a spot like there, is there something within any span of your life that you're you've taken to heart in a way that's you feel like it's probably affected your art more than anything else um 
Yeah, yeah, I think my dad, um, because, and I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but like my dad, and, and I don't say this lightly, my father was a genius and he dropped out of college. Um, and so very quickly kind of hit the glass ceiling, but he was a very talented maker um, and was always tinkering with things. Um, tinkering, it feels like it's marginalizing what he was doing. He did some really, really fascinating, interesting things. However, uh, when we would walk into a museum or a gallery, he would immediately just dismiss it as like him, his not being able to understand it. Um, and that is like a socially constructed idea that only educated people can understand contemporary art with a capital A. And that just like put a splinter <laughs> in my skin and I think has been somewhat of the impetus driving me towards um, creating work that isn't so steeped in theory, um, that is immediate in its emotional impact. Um, but also, you know, if, if for people who are educated in the, like quote educated in these things who have, who understand the canon and the history, like there are things for them to geek out on. And it does reference those things because I am interested in those things, you know, but I, I just don't, um, the fact that there are people who are so smart that don't feel like they're they're smart enough, they have, are being told that they're not smart enough to understand these things, I cannot stand that. Um, and so I think that that has really been at the foundation of making the type of work that I'm making. Um, and so I would have to say that that would be one of the biggest ones, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I have two fun, maybe fun questions or one, sure. just one back to back question. We mentioned throughout this conversation, two things that we didn't get in on, which is comics and music. So just give me your favorite comics that you're reading right now, or the, your historically favorite, and then give me uh, some of your favorite bands or what's on your playlist right now while you're working or whatever. Okay. So I'll just give you what I, what I have recently read, which is uh, Chris Ware's um, uh, Jimmy Corgan, Smartest Kid on Earth is a comic that I read that I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, and music, oh man, music. Um, shoot. Oh, I guess the, well, let me just look at my phone and tell you exactly what the most recent thing that I was listening to was. Oh, um, Alex Cameron. Alex Cameron. Um, he is this, uh, I've been listening to him all day today. He is this pop singer, um, kind of bizarre, but uh, I just love it. His love songs are, it just, they feel so real. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Anyway, it's like <laughs> Alex Cameron. I think he's great. Cool. Thanks, Jordan. This was, this was awesome. I'm going to end it in a second. Don't go anywhere. Thanks a lot for talking with me. I'm glad we got a chance to catch up and get to yeah, know man, you. I really appreciate you having me on here. This is great. I, I love what you're doing and yeah, keep it up. Oh, I will. I will. And we'll, we'll have to do it again down the line because obviously there's so many more things that you could like tell us about. And um, hopefully, you know, after grad school, you, some amazing things will be happening. So we'll, we'll learn more about that as well. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'd love to. All right. Thanks a lot. I'm going to stop. the. All right, here we are at the end. You made it. Thanks a lot for uh, hanging out. If you're still here, still listening, this was a longer one than um, I normally go. I try to cut it off at an hour or less, you know. But Jordan, it was like Jordan was a great guest. He kept he had he was like an ideal podcast guest. He actually had things to say, which was awesome. And we found some cool tangents to go on and 
different ideas. So hopefully you enjoyed it. I got something out of it. I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. Now is time what I like to call credit reel. So, and that's where I give shout outs to the Patreon supporters that are currently supporting. I have two. Woo! Yay me, I have two. And it's Rowan Chamberlain and Michael Knapp have been supporting the, the, the Patreon for a while now. So thanks a lot, guys. You guys are amazing. Um, maybe you will be the third supporter of the Patreon. That would be amazing. I would love it so much. It would make my life if you were decided to go over to the Patreon and check it out. And so it's patreon.com slash the Zim. I have right now, I think I have like five tier levels. Um, act, you know, or you can just decide to not a, do a tier or just donate any amount you'd like. It's, you know, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a, uh, basically a subscription to supporting artists and creatives and well, anybody that has a Patreon. Um, a lot of times it's used for artists and creatives to kind of help them keep doing what they're doing. If you know anything about back in the olden days, um, that's kind of how artists were paid often. They were, they had patrons that would like, you know, help feed them so they could make art and they would make art for that person and others, but they were just kind of like sponsored by noblemen and things like that. So it kind of comes from that. At least that's what I understand. Um, how that used to work back back in the olden times but um it's still kind of relevant today you know artists tend in, a, in this western society that we're in um, in america artists are kind of the low man on the totem pole a lot of times when it comes to being able to make ends meet so if you want to help me that would be amazing um so i was talking about the tier levels like I basically start you at a dollar and then it goes up so i have a tier at a dollar five dollar ten dollar and there's different incentives in those different tier levels. Um, And hopefully as I grow, like if I get like a hundred patrons that are sporting between, you know, one and a hundred dollars, those incentives will also get better. And, you know, I do, I do, if you've been sporting for a while, like if you decide to support, I just randomly just give you stuff. I'll just, you know, send you something. I'll be like, hey, you know, (laughs) you've been supporting for a while. Let me send you something. So, or, and I'm always open too to like, if you know about what I do, um, I've been really into portraits. Actually, there's a portrait tier um, now on the uh, Patreon. So if you want a portrait of somebody yourself or somebody you know in my style, then you can sign up for that tier and um, get a portrait or if there's something else that you know I do that's not on that tiers and you're like hey Zim I'd really like it if we could do this and I'll and I'd be like sure let's hook it up you know figure that out but um so check it out 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 um I think that's about it um yeah that's all I gotta say this time normally I have lots to say but I can't really think of anything to say so Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today. Um, Hopefully you'll come back. Be sure to subscribe, do all the stuff. Uh, Yeah, all right. Until next time, be loving, kind, and patient. Peace.